Today is also my wedding anniversary. And I know what you're thinking. My wife is a lucky woman. Because this morning when she woke up, the present that she got, what every woman wishes for, a sermon. Here, baby, here's a sermon for our wedding anniversary. Don't you love it? And this is the second time in our marriage I've preached on our anniversary. How good is that? But I did ask her, don't worry. The first time I actually didn't realize. So, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I've gotten better. I've gotten better. Uh, so praise the Lord for his grace. Uh, welcome. If you're visiting, I just want to say hi. Uh, thank you for coming to our series, Are You For Real? Uh, we're in what, week five. I think we've got one more next week. Surely there can't be just one way. Uh, that's the kind of topic, the question for today. And you, thinking about marriage, uh, six years, for some of you is not very long. For some of you think, wow, I can't believe they've been married for six years. Uh, and for me, it's one of the beautiful things is over those six years, I've seen our relationship get closer and stronger. You think, I thought when we fell in love that we knew everything, that you know we were um, fully loving each other as much as we could. But then the longer we've been married, the more... I know about her, the more she knows about me. And even though that's kind of scary, you grow a greater appreciation for one another. And one of the beautiful things about marriage is that exclusive nature about it. The depth, the intimacy, and the safety that comes from declaring that to the exclusion of everyone else, I'm here for you and you're here for me, despite what happens in our life for richer or for poorer. Uh, And I think our our culture recognizes the beauty of that, that exclusivity, that specialness. Uh, Things are changing to some degree, uh, but more or less, I think most people would go, there is something special in that design. One man, one woman, together, to the exclusion of all else. Yet in other areas of our culture, I think we are quite allergic uh, to the idea of exclusion. Uh, Yesterday... Donald Trump was inaugurated as the 45th president of the United States of America. Uh, And he received a lot of criticism during his time, and perhaps most of all because of some of his exclusive comments on immigration, you know, banning all Muslims from coming to America. We're, We're allergic to that idea that you could exclude anyone, you know, kicking out the the, the, the Mexicans or the, the, the people that are illegal immigrants, that idea that you would exclude someone from being in America. Furthermore, uh, as time has gone on with the debates about same-sex marriage, the argument is often couched in terms of the injustice uh, that people of same-sex attraction wouldn't be allowed to be included in the marriage ceremony, in the marriage union, in the covenant of marriage. How can it be just that they love each other? Why can't they have that title, that exclusive title, that we are married? And yet perhaps more than any of these, the most offensive one is to have an exclusive claim about religion. To believe that your religion is the one true religion, or that your way is the one true way. In his book, The Reason for God, which Brendan mentioned earlier, uh, Tim Keller had interviewed a few people, and I'm going to share some of the conversations that came out from those interviews. And I think these, these quotes capture the mindset, uh, the general mindset. I've been having conversations all week about people with this. I just kind of stop my neighbors in our unit block and ask them, look, can I be awkward? But can I ask you a question? And I ask them about religion and exclusivity. And, and, and the general vibe is something along these lines. I think, I think it's quite accurate. So this, the quote will be on the screen. 
How could there be just one true faith? Asked Blair, a 24-year-old woman living in Manhattan. It's arrogant to say your religion is superior and try to convert everyone else to it. Surely all the religions are equally good and valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. Religious exclusivity is not just narrow, added Jeff, a 20-something British man also living in New York City. Religion has led to untold strife, division, and conflict. It may be the greatest enemy of peace in the world. If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth, and if other religions do this as well, the world will never know peace. Have you ever had some of these thoughts? Have you ever kind of stopped and thought, yeah, how, how is it possible? I, I teach world religions. Uh, I'm a teacher at Barker College, and the first time I went through the whole course teaching about Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, uh, and Hinduism, the, the big five, and Christianity, you start thinking, yeah, it, it is. Like, it, it does sound sort of wrong. And maybe you could add your own voice of skepticism to those voices. Things like, surely if God was a loving God, he would save everyone, regardless of their religion. Or perhaps you might think differently. All truth is relative and is a product of culture, perspective, experience. And thus no one can make absolute or exclusive truth claims, especially about God. Or perhaps you've thought something like this. Haven't we moved on from truth and right and wrong? If it's true for them and helps them to be a good person, what's all the fuss about? Surely, there can't be just one way. Well, we don't have the time, the ability, or I don't have the ability to deal with all of the questions. But we are going to deal with that one question, that kind of statement question. Surely, there can't be just one way. Uh, and we're going to do it by asking three other questions to kind of guide our way through. So first question will be, is Christianity exclusive? Second question, but what about other religions and worldviews? And the third question, where do we go from here? Surely there can't be just one way. Uh, why don't you pray with me? And we're going to see what God has to say on this issue from the Bible. Our dear Lord, we humbly come before you this morning and ask that you would reveal truth to us. Please speak. Please help us to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. So question number one. Is Christianity exclusive? It's almost a swear word exclusive. Surely there can't be just one way. And I'm going to just give you my answer, and then we're going to deal with it in two parts. And welcome back, Sean and Beth. I just realized you're here. Welcome back from the UK. Sorry. Just saw you and went, whoa. Give them a round of applause, actually. Sorry. Um, I hope you guys are good. Anyway, so we're going to, here's my answer. Sorry. I got distracted. Christianity is both exclusive and inclusive. That's my short answer. My long answer is this. It is exclusive in that there is only one way to have an eternal relationship with God, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. 
But Christianity is also inclusive because anyone without distinction or discrimination can be saved by the grace of God alone. Okay, so let's deal with the first part of the answer. Christianity is exclusive. And as much as we might want, and I sometimes want, and like I work in a school, there's 2,000 students, and when you start making truth claims, their eyes are looking at you, and you kind of feel the tug and the pressure, and you might have it in conversations at work. We might want the toned-down version, the PC version, the Diet Coke version, you know, no sugar. Um, we, you want the easy version, the light version. But I think what we have to do in truth is go back to uh, the Bible itself, the source of what Christianity has as its authority, and see what the Bible has to say to this question. And we're going to look at a whole bunch of passages this morning to see how the Bible addresses this question of exclusivity. But we're going to begin um, in Acts chapter 4 with the earliest followers of Jesus to see what people have been saying about Christianity, to see what they said right at the beginning. Uh, So if you've got a Bible, love you to turn to Acts chapter 4. If you don't have one, it'll be on the screen as well. And if you're not quite sure how the Bible all fits together, Acts is the book that kind of explains how the message of Jesus went out after Jesus died and rose again and ascended <clears throat> into heaven. And to give you a bit of context, we're in chapter 4, so chapter 3, the best friends of Jesus were walking around um, near the temple and this, this, this lame person who couldn't walk, uh, he calls out, you know, can you give me some money? And they say, we have no gold or silver, but this we do have in the name of Jesus Christ, Walk. Uh, stand up. And and he does. And so there's this miraculous healing. In the name of Jesus, the guy that was just crucified, public execution, in that name, this guy walks. And then Peter goes on to preach to the crowd and and, uh, all these people are saved. And it's it's a really crazy moment, this miracle. People are like, whoa, Jesus must be alive. And, And then we get to Acts chapter four. So why don't you read with me? And as they, that's the disciples, the apostles, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So that's like the the key religious figures. Look at verse 2. Greatly annoyed. Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. It's never been popular, Christianity. It always is abrasive. Verse 3, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And you've got to think, in ancient times, 5,000 people in one day, that's a huge crowd of people to all go from being just Jews, to becoming followers of this man Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Then uh, verse 5, the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. So all the bigwigs, all the religious elite, all the people who represented the hierarchy and the aristocracy. Verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? So they're being interrogated for doing a good work. Now, in our society, we love good works as long as you sort of 
keep it general, keep it vague. And, and it was similar back then. They've done a good work. They've healed a man. He can walk. But then they want to know, in whose name, by what authority did you do this healing? And there's only one wrong answer. And that's what Peter gives. Check out verse 8. Then Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, said, or filled with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus, verse 11, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, uh, rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I want you to notice how specific they were. They weren't vague. They weren't general. They were at pains to make sure that they understood that Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one of Nazareth, that guy that you crucified on a cross, he is the one who gives us living power today. And he is the only one that can save people and bring them to God. It's very bold. They're arrested. They're already in trouble. These are the guys that killed Jesus, yet they stand with conviction. They have no other message because there is no other saviour. But you might be thinking, are these guys just overzealous? You know, are they just really excited? They, they've had this revelation. They've had this spiritual experience. So they're, they're all amped up. And maybe you've met someone who has turned to a new religion or is really into CrossFit or Apple. And you know, like there's people at Apple that line up for days and days and days to get the new Apple product and then you tell them you've got a Samsung and they spit at you and they hate you and they tell you all the reasons why your Samsung is pathetic and why Apple is better. Are they just like this? Are they just like those guys, kind of intolerant, excited, but ignorant? Do they make up the message themselves? Well, let's go back to the source. Let's look at Jesus himself. Jesus, the guy that we like to quote the golden rule, do unto others as you would do unto yourself. The loving Jesus, the merciful Jesus, what does he have to say? Surely he can't be exclusive too. Well, let's have a look in John chapter 4. Oh, no, 14. So, to give you a little bit of context, if we're going to look at Jesus, we just need to get back into the story. This passage is just the night before Jesus is going to die. He's having his last meal with his disciples and he's told them that he's going away. He's actually going to heaven. And Thomas is confused. Thomas doesn't really know what's happening. And so Thomas says this, one of the disciples, who was called Thomas the Doubter. And so if you're a doubter, you have a place in the Bible. You know, it's okay to doubt. Thomas, Jesus didn't kick Thomas out. Thomas was a doubter. And Thomas said this, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So we're talking about heaven. We're talking about being with God. And Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, 
and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Loving, gracious, merciful, kind, inclusive Jesus. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say, I am a way, the way. Is that just a one-off? Well, Jesus actually said it a lot of times. Let's look at another verse, John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 8, verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And Matthew chapter 10. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. They're quite jarring words, aren't they? They're quite offensive to some degree. They're strong. They're they're sort of unexpected for Jesus to say that. But this is his message. Is Christianity exclusive? Well, the first part of our answer is yes. There is only one way to have an eternal relationship with God, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. The early disciples taught it. Jesus himself taught it. All of church history has taught it. The message will not change. It is the one message of Christianity, one way to God through Jesus Christ. But it's not the only message of Christianity. It's not all that Jesus said. Let's turn to the second half of my answer to the question, which is this. So Christianity is exclusive, but part B, Christianity is also inclusive because anyone without distinction or discrimination can be saved by the grace of God alone. How is this possible? How can Jesus be both exclusive and inclusive? How can he say, I am the way and still be someone worth trusting? Well, the Bible has a message of great equality. It begins in Genesis 1. It says that men and women are made in the image of God. We're all equal. There's equality in person between man and woman. And we're made in the very image of God. So we all have dignity, value and worth that derives from God. There's no caste system. There's no hierarchy on birth. There's no status um, that is given to you by God. All are equal. And there's three other points I want to make to kind of show how Christianity is inclusive. First point is this. Not only are we are all equal, but secondly, the Bible teaches we are all sinners. Now, this doesn't sound very nice either, but it is an inclusive type of phrase that everyone is a sinner. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Which means that all humankind is equal. No one is better or worse. No one is born ahead of the curve or behind the curve. In our arrogance, in our pride, we have all rejected God. We have all missed the mark. 
we're all by either conscious rebellion or unconscious. We, we just don't care about God. We don't think about God. We don't worship. We don't praise God. We either do it actively or passively. But in some way, we're all equal in that we've all gone our own way. And so Christianity has no distinction between um, better types of people or worse types of people. The, the Bible kind of says, you, it's not nice, but you're all low. You've all missed the mark. But secondly... All are invited to receive salvation. So we're all made in God's image. We're all equal. We're all equally sinners. And we're all invited to receive salvation. Listen to what Jesus says again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Come to me, in Matthew 11, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Then some of the later writers of Christianity, 1 Timothy, this is the Apostle Paul, he says, this is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It doesn't seem possible for for Christianity to be both exclusive, there's only one way, and inclusive, but all are invited. Anyone can be saved, but not everyone will be. Anyone can call upon the name of the Lord, but not everyone will. Today, after church, uh, there's an invitation that anyone wants to go down to D.Y. or Mona Vale Beach, I can't remember which one, everyone's invited. There's no distinction. It's not like, oh, if you're new, you can't come, or if you've got a beard, you can't come, or if you're under 18, you can't come. All are invited to the beach today, okay? Everyone's invited, and if you want to come and experience the beauty of the beach, you want to come and play in the sand and make sandcastles, you can tell I've got kids. Uh, if you want to go swim or go surfing, whatever, everyone's invited. But not all of you will come. Not everyone um, wants to do that today. Not everyone thinks it's the best option for their Sunday afternoon. But everyone's still invited today. Everyone's still able to come if you wanted to. And it's the same with Christianity. All are invited. There is no exclusion. If you were born into a Hindu family, a Muslim family, a Jewish family, an atheist family, you don't have to... You know, you're not excluded based on that. You are actually invited. Come to Christ. And point four on that, so all are made equal, all are sinners, all are invited, all are able, because it is all by grace. Romans 10 says this, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, i.e. there is no distinction between Jew and non-Jew. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The old system of do good and be rewarded, do bad and you'll be punished, is dismantled under Jesus. See, all are able to come to him because it's all by grace. Ephesians 2 verse 8 to 9 says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. You see, if there was a certain requirement you had to meet 
and you were perhaps like Karina had failed miserably to meet up to that requirement and you were always chasing the bar, trying to get closer to the bar, not everyone could be saved. If you only heard about Jesus right at the end of your life and you had to do a certain number of good deeds, but you only heard about Jesus right at the end and you had to make up for all the bad deeds, how could you ever do it? And if you expound the ideas of what is good and bad and start looking at the intentions of your heart and all the things that you haven't done that you ought to have done, the list would get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and you'd never be able to make it up. Yet Christianity dismantles that framework completely and establishes a new system, the grace system, the gift system, that God offers a gift of salvation, the gift of cleanliness before him, the gift of holiness, the gift of righteousness, that you can be like God in his sight and you don't earn it, all you do is receive it. Christianity is a gift to be received not a reward to be earned. And therefore, all are able because there's no work that has to be done. There's no righteous requirement that has to be met. The only work that God requires of you is to put your faith in his son Jesus and accept his salvation. And I think that's a beautiful message. It's a liberating message. I've experienced the liberation of that message that I don't have to measure up. You don't have to measure up. Even if you become a Christian and you fail, you still are included. See, the old system says once you stuff it, you're out. You haven't made it. You're an outcast. Shame is upon you. The grace system, the Jesus system, covers all your wrongdoing. Isn't that beautiful? You know, it is exclusive. There's only one way. But the inclusive way is so good. The inclusiveness of Christ, the way that he opens up is so sure because he knows you and he knows everything you've done. And that's sort of revealing, but it's also comforting because he came after you. So, is Christianity exclusive? Surely there can't be just one way. Well, yes, Christianity is exclusive. There is only one way to be saved. There's only one way to have eternal relationship with God. And that is through his son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But Christianity is also inclusive because anyone without distinction or discrimination can be saved by the grace of God alone. But you might be thinking now, okay, I get it. Christianity is exclusive. Jesus clearly taught it. The apostles taught it. Uh, It's inclusive, I guess, for those who believe. But what about all the other world religions? What about all the other world views? Um, To bring Blair back up, I think she captures the quote so well, how could there be just one true faith? Okay, maybe that, that, that message is good for you, but it's arrogant to say that your religion is superior and to try and convert everyone else to it. Surely all the religions are equally true, equally valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. I mean, after all, roughly 30% of the world is Christian, 2.2 billion. But then 1.6 billion people are Islamic, 22%. 1.1 billion people are non-religiously affiliated or atheists or agnostic. 700 million of those are in China, but still 1.1 billion. That's 15% of the world's population, a billion Hindus at 14%, 400 million Chinese traditional religion at 4%, 
and nearly 400 million Buddhists at 5%. And then there's something like 4,200 other religions, worldviews, cults, systems. How can you say that Jesus is the only way? Surely there's got to be truth. Surely it's like a mountain and God's at the top of the mountain. I think this is the assumption in the, the question. Surely there can only be one way. The assumption is there is a God. We all want to go to heaven. And surely we're all just taking different paths up the mountain. Or, you know, when you type in Google Maps, you want to go somewhere and it gives you like four different alternate routes, but you all get to the same destination. Some take longer, some are better than others. Some cost more, there's tolls. But we all get to the same place. Surely, through Buddhism, through Hinduism, through Islam, through, you know, secular humanism, whatever, surely we all get there in the end. Well... I think there's a really interesting analogy that I've read in Tim Keller's book, Reason for God, but he didn't come up with it. It's um, actually from Lillian Quigley's children's book, but it's actually an old giant um, thing, uh, a story, a parable. And it's the parable of the blind man and the elephant. And I think it explains so much and is a really helpful tool, uh, but it has some limitations. So let me tell you the story. There's, There's six blind men. And they, they're going to go visit, they're in India, um, and they're going to go visit the Raja's palace, the king's palace. And in the king's palace, they go there, and there's an elephant. And for some reason, the elephant is really chillaxed, and it's just standing there, and it lets them, the blind men, all go up to um, the elephant and touch it. And as the blind men go to the elephant, they all have a different perspective. They can't see, but they start calling out what an elephant is like. And, and the first blind man touches the side of the elephant and says, well, an elephant is smooth and large like a wall. The second man puts out his hand and he kind of, he feels around and he gets the trunk of the elephant and says, oh, you know, the elephant, no, no, an elephant is like a snake. It's long and round. And then the third blind man puts his hand out and grabs the tusk and says, no, no, an elephant is sharp like a spear. And the fourth says, he grabs the, tr- the leg of the elephant and he says, oh no, a- an elephant is tall like a tree. And the fifth man, and it goes on and on and on. And, and they all have different perspectives. Uh, they're blind, they can't see, they're only getting a limited view. And then the king calls out. And the king says, you're all wrong. An elephant is one great big animal. And the blind men come together and they say, you must, oh, he says, you must put all the parts together to find out what an elephant is like. And enlightened by the Raja's wisdom, the blind men reached an agreement. Each one of us only knows a part. To find out the whole truth, we must put all the parts together. And in some ways, that's a really compelling story because you think, okay, elephant is like God. We're all blind. We don't really know what God's like. And each religion is sort of grabbing a part of the elephant and Islam is going, no, God is like, you know, the legs. And and Christianity is going, no, God is like the trunk. And and someone else, Buddhism is saying, no, there is no God. It's it's a tail. And, And we're all trying to claim this bigger truth, but we're all blind and we all, you know, it all leads to the same point. So everyone, who's right and who's wrong in that scenario? Well, they're sort of all right and all wrong. Because the elephant, they just don't see it in full. And so that's the problem with world religions. You can't say that there's only one way because you're all seeing just a small part of the truth. And you're all sort of valid, um, but you're all sort of wrong too. And I appreciate, I, I think it's actually a helpful illustration. It can kind of teach us. You know, I should be humble. Maybe I don't see the whole picture. 
Uh, I should listen to other people and see what I can learn. Uh, I shouldn't jump to conclusions. Uh, But I think it falls apart in a couple of ways. And I think this whole argument of what's called pluralism, uh, which is that all kind of truth claims are valid um, to their own hearer and that we should accept all truth claims as valid. I think the problem with this is when you ask the question, who are you in the story? Think about that. Who are you in this story? Are you the blind man or are you the king? See, Tim Keller says this, How could you know that each blind man only sees part of the elephant unless you claim to be able to see the whole elephant? How could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality, of the spiritual reality you just claimed that none of the other religions have. The problem is, is that you've assumed that you're not blind. See, if you think all religions are valid and equal and they all kind of sing, it assumes that you know that it's an elephant. It assumes that you're not blind. It assumes that you can actually see the whole part and, and, you know, and the you know, the silly Christians and the Muslims and the Hindus, you know, they're blind, but we can see. It's an elephant. And so we should all just calm down and just accept everyone's viewpoints. But that itself is an exclusive truth claim. To go out and say it's an elephant is a claim to know what the nature of God is like. To know the answer to all the religions is that they're all equal is a claim in and of itself. Now, it sounds tolerant, it sounds permissive, it sounds inclusive, but itself is actually an exclusive claim on the truth, namely that no one religion has it right. And so in and of itself, although it doesn't sound exclusive, it actually is. And to be honest, it's actually a little bit arrogant. It's a little bit arrogant to assume that you can actually see the whole picture. But there's also a second problem with that story. And uh, uh, an author, Greg Kukul, puts this, points this out. And it's that the parable, to actually make sense, requires revelation. See, the blind man need revelation from someone outside to understand that it, what an elephant is really like. Otherwise, they're trapped in the dark. So either there is such a thing as revelation, there is such a thing as truth, and we can know that all religions are equally valid, it's an elephant, or we're all in the dark, but we need revelation, otherwise no one can claim that it's an elephant. Do you know what I mean? Do you understand that, that if, you, if you claim that, you know, that all religions are equal and valid, it's, it's assuming that you can see. Uh, and so it sort of dismantles your own claim. It's self-contradictory. And it also points out, too, that we actually need revelation. And that's exactly what all the religions claim. Not all of them. But Christianity claims that Jesus is the king who calls out and says, I know it's an elephant. This is what it's really like. So what do we do? What about other world religions and worldviews? Although... It is appealing and sounds unoffensive to believe that all paths lead up the same mountain. The reality is, I think that we're all the blind men in the scenario. 
And we all need the king to call out. We all need revelation. And so that leads us to our final question. Where do we go from here? I've got a couple of thoughts. First thought is this. The exclusivity of Christianity should never mean arrogance or pride or hatred from Christians. It should never mean that I think I'm better than someone from another religion or from those who have no religious viewpoint. Because we are the blind man groping in the dark, searching for truth. And we would have never found it unless the king had called out. We would have never known that Jesus is the way unless he had have come to us first. And so there should be no cause for pride or arrogance or looking down on people of other religions. Because without God speaking, without the king calling out, I am the way, the truth, and the life, we never would have found him. We never would have known that the elephant was an elephant, that God is who he is. We would have been holding the, tri- the, you know, the what are they called, legs, and thinking that's what God is like and holding on to it but not knowing the whole picture. And there's times when I have to deal with my own arrogance in this area. When I get excited about knowing something, I feel like I want to prove other people wrong. I want to show that I got the right way. I know the true way. But the reality is, and I was convicted of this, is I'm a blind man. And I heard the voice of a king. And I've trusted in his voice. There's lots of other voices in the world saying, I know what that is. That's an elephant. And to humbly follow Jesus is to say, I believe his voice. And so if you're a Christian, it should actually produce humility. The exclusive claim of Christianity, the grace claim of Christianity, should produce humility in you. I couldn't have saved myself. I couldn't have known. I'm a blind person. I can hardly get through a day well, let alone know the eternal reality of the universe. I need the king, and he came to me. But not just humility, I think it should produce humble boldness. You can be bold and humble. You can make an exclusive truth claim and not be a jerk about it. And we should actually be bold with the message. We don't need to decry everyone and say, you're wrong, you're stupid, your view is in, in, you know, whatever. But what we can say is this, and we ought to say, and we need to say is, the king has spoken. I've heard about Jesus, and he's changed my life. I trust in his voice. Investigate it for yourself by all means, but he's the voice that I listen to. Yeah, I'm blind. I don't see the whole picture. But we ought to still be bold in our humility and still proclaim Jesus is the only way. And that won't go well for you. The apostles were arrested. Most of the early church fathers, I just heard from someone during the week, most of the early Christians, when they met in 350 AD to kind of ratify all the church documents, all but one had scars, had lost limbs, had lost eyes, because they proclaimed that exclusive truth that Jesus is the only way. So you won't be liked You won't be well-treated necessarily. People might be polite to you, which is nice. There's a nice thing about our tolerant culture. One of the great things about the inclusiveness of our culture is that people are often polite. Um, But you won't be liked. People will disrespect you. People will look down on you. 
if you proclaim Jesus is your only way. But we ought to still humbly and boldly proclaim it because we believe it is the truth. And out of love, we have to tell them, it's an elephant. He told me. It's not my, I didn't figure it out. He told me. Will you believe? But secondly, you might still be kind of, and I would totally understand this, still thinking, but how do I know that Jesus is good? How do I know he's the one way and the right way and the good way? How can you be exclusive and good? How can you say I'm the only way to salvation and still be someone worth following? You might be still feeling that, whether you're a Christian or not yet a Christian, not yet a follower of Jesus. I think the answer to this one is simple. The same man who claims that he is the exclusive way to God gave away his life to save you. The same man who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Doesn't call that out from a palace. Doesn't call that out from all of his riches and his bank account that he's profited on because he's the exclusive one way. Give me all your money. Give me your, you know, follow me. He doesn't get it from that. He calls that out the night before he's crucified. He calls it out the night before he's crushed. He calls it out the night before the wrath of God is put on him. And so you can look at his intentions, you can look at his life, you can look at his character and see he is a voice worth trusting. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He wasn't exclusive in the way he treated people. His best friends were prostitutes, thieves, simpletons. You can trust him in his death. You can trust him in his life. You can trust him because he gave away his life for you, for your benefit. His claim is not for his benefit alone. His claim is for you. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me is a gift to you. To hear that is a gift. If you've been here this morning, you've received a gift. And the gift is this. You've heard the good news that there's only one way and that you can be saved no matter what you've done, no matter what doubts you have, no matter your skepticism, you can be saved. And so I invite you. I invite you, put your faith in Christ. I invite you to trust his voice. I invite you to recognize that you are a blind man or a blind woman, that you can't see but that he is the voice of revelation. I invite you to trust in him. Take that step of faith. And it is faith. You cannot see. You cannot be 100%. It is faith. But you can trust the one you're putting your faith in. I also invite you to start a conversation. To start asking the questions. To start letting your doubts come out, to be humble enough to actually get a Christian friend who maybe brought you along here today and just start asking them questions. You don't have to believe right this very moment, though I would encourage you, put your faith in Christ right now. But if you can't, next step is have a question, have a conversation, maybe read some of Jesus' claims together and see if you can, over time, put your faith in him. So, is Christianity exclusive? Surely, there can't be just one way. 
There is only one way to have an eternal relationship with God. And that is through his son, Jesus Christ. But Jesus is totally inclusive. And that anyone can call upon in the name of the Lord and you will be saved by the grace of God alone. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, we're aware this is a tough topic. Lord, we're aware that many of us have come from different religious backgrounds. Our parents have different religious backgrounds. Our, our stories, our world, our culture has different narratives. Lord, we're aware that we couldn't figure this all out on our own. We're aware that we need revelation. Lord, would you help us to hear your voice? Would you help us to see that you are the king? Would you help us to put our faith in you? Lord Jesus, you said that I am the way. And would you, as a church, would you make it your prayer? Would you make it your confession that you put your faith in him and him alone? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Lord God, would you produce in us humility? We haven't got it all together. We didn't figure it out. Would you give us boldness, a humble boldness to tell our friends, to tell our family, to tell our colleagues that Jesus is the way. Would you give us grace in his name, the name above all names, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the immortal one, the invisible one, the one who will come in glory in his name, the name that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Give us grace in his name. Amen.